The rest of you, go, it's Psalm 106. We've been singing about grace, so now let's learn some more about that grace. Psalm 106. Don't stand yet. Uh, we'll stand in just a minute. I wanted to start, however, uh, just in your memory of Luke chapter 7, where Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house for a meal. And while he was there, a woman who was of ill repute heard that Jesus was going to Simon's house and she showed up with a vial of an alabaster vial of perfume and while she was standing behind Jesus she was crying and her tears were wetting his feet you remember that story and she took her hair she dried the tears from his feet and Simon the Pharisee was upset and said if Jesus realized who this woman was that was touching him, he would shun her. He would put her down. He would rebuke her. And Jesus knew Simon's thoughts. And so he told Simon a parable of a man who had two debtors. Each owed him some money. One owed him more than the other. Right? When the man released both from their debt, Jesus said, which one would love him more? And Simon answered correctly, the man who owed him the most. And Jesus said, you know, Simon, I came into your house and you did not wash my feet. You did not greet me. You did not do for me. But this woman who you are rebuking, she anointed my feet with the perfume. She dried it with her hair and her tears, washed my feet. And you've done nothing. And Jesus said, because of that, because of her great love, right, her sin is forgiven. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. Whoever is forgiven little loves little. You know, we read that story and we think about what did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean that because Simon was a Pharisee and therefore he was less sinful than this woman, that if his sin was forgiven, being few, that he would love Jesus little, and that because a person has great sin and they're forgiven, that they would love Jesus more? You know, the Bible does not teach that. And if we really got into that story spiritually, I think we would understand something. That it's not the amount of your sin that causes you to love or not love as much. It's the realization of your sin. The realization of who you are before a holy God. The realization of what needs to happen in your heart and life that causes you to love much. Jesus said one sin would keep a man out of heaven. A hundred thousand sins will keep a man out of heaven. One sin can be forgiven. A hundred thousand can be forgiven. Should one who's forgiven more love more and the one forgiven less love less? It's not that. It's the idea that this woman, we believe her name was Mary, she realized who she was before Jesus, and therefore she loved him much. Simon 
did not realize who he was before Jesus. Therefore, he loved Jesus little. If we think of our sin lightly, then we'll think of the Savior lightly. Amen? When a person receives the grace of God, it is due to the fact that they have all of a sudden realized who they are before a holy God. Therefore, your sin forgiven compared to my sin forgiven, we should love Him equally. You can't compare your life to my life and think that you might love Him more than I do. It doesn't matter about the amount of sin. It matters about the realization of sin. And compared to that, we love the Lord greatly. Let's stand. Psalm 106 causes us to consider both our sin and God's grace. We don't really know who wrote this psalm. A lot of people want to give it to David. There were some songs of David that have words similar to Psalm 106. We're not going to read the entire chapter because it's uh, 48 verses. All right. What I want to do is begin in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 5. Let's begin there. It says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let me stop there. Another word that we could use there for loving kindness is mercy. Another word we could use there is grace. Okay? Verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or who can show forth all His praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, in Thy favor toward Thy people. Visit me with Thy salvation, that I may see the prosperity of the chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of Thy nation, that I may glory with Thine inheritance. Let's stop there. Father, we ask you to help us understand the grace that you've extended to us today. I pray that a Christian man would see the depth of his sin even today and realize the greatness of your grace. I pray that someone here, like Simon, who feels they have little sin, would see the enormity of their sin and the cause and consequences of it, and they too would see the grace that you have extended to them as well. Father, change hearts this morning in this place. Use your word and your Holy Spirit to accomplish your purpose today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The psalmist starts out with a thanks and a praise, and then he goes into his discourse about the sin of people, the sin of his people, the sin of of the nation of Israel. Psalm 106 is broken into three periods of time. The exodus, <coughs> excuse me, from Egypt to the wilderness. It is also broken into the wilderness experience, the sin of the people in the exodus, the sin of the people in the wilderness, and then the sin of the people when they entered the promised land. Three periods of time for this people. He ends the psalm with a great word of praise and thanks and blessing from God, asking God to bless. So let's 
quickly, we'll go through these periods of time. The first period, the Exodus period, is beginning in verse 6 through 12. It talks about the rebellion of the people. When they got out of Egypt, immediately, immediately, they began to rebel against God. Now, what does that have to do with me today? All right? When you become a Christian and you are saved, let me tell you what happens in the spiritual realm. You were on Satan's side, and suddenly you have jumped ship and come to Christ. Right? And now you are an enemy of the devil. And so because you are new and young and fresh and ignorant, not stupid, but ignorant of the ways of God, the devil begins to attack you and he begins to pour it on you and he begins to make you question what has happened in your life. Did anybody ever question your salvation or am I the only one in this room? We all questioned our salvation, didn't we? We all wanted to make sure we did it right. We all wanted to make sure we prayed the right words and all of that. You know what? There aren't words to pray it right. There's nothing like that in the Bible. It's all with this. It's all believing that Jesus is who He says He is, who God says He is. And so when that happens, then the devil wants to squish our testimony and squish our witness why? Because we're coming from a crowd of unbelievers into a group of people that we really don't know. We still have influence with this crowd of unbelievers. And as they see us change our lives by the Lord, they begin to question, well, if the devil can get us to mess up, then he causes us to have a poor testimony and a less of a witness. So the Lord saved the Israelites out of Egypt took them away from Pharaoh, took them out of the land of sin, and brought them toward the land of blessing. And in that process, they began to rebel. Satan was pouring on the attack. We all know the story. They hadn't traveled but a few days, and they, they made an idol out of gold, a calf, and they worshipped it. Just a few days from being delivered, and now they're worshipping a false god. Do you see what happens when Satan has that ability? These people had the sin of rebellion. They had the sin of idolatry. They had the, the sin of a superficial faith. Let me show you that in verse 10. Let's read. It says, So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, Pharaoh, ultimately the devil. Verse 10b, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy, and the water covered their adversary. Not one of them was left. What's he talking about there? The Red Sea. God parted the sea. The Israelites walked across on dry ground. When the Egyptians chased after them and came into the sea, the walls of water collapsed and covered the Egyptians, and they drowned. Verse 12, then, then... They believed His words. <laughs> God, you show us, then I'll believe you. Is that really, is that really belief? Is that really faith? Is that, is that saving faith? To say, God, I'm going to come to your side, but you show me something. You show me. That's not faith. That's not trusting in God. God said it. They didn't believe it. 
until God accomplished it in front of them. And then the Bible says, then they believed his words. Let me tell you something. That's not saving faith. That's superficial faith. That is a faith that says, I will believe God after I've seen what he can do and after I've seen what he does. Here's what happened to them. They were saved. They went out singing praise to God. And a few days later, they sold him out. Because they started worshiping a, a, a golden calf. You know, Jesus talked about uh, crowds of people like that in a parable called the sower and the seed. And he said, the sower went out to sow seed and some of the seed fell in the rocky soil and it sprang up quickly. Everybody received it with joy, but because it had no place to root, the sun came out and baked it, it withered and it died. Jesus said, that's just like people like these Israelites. They received God's salvation out of Egypt with joy, singing his praise as they walked out of Pharaoh's hands. And immediately, trouble came. No water, no food, no leadership. And they tore down their jewels and built a stone, a golden calf. And they begin to worship that. Let me tell you, true saving faith endures. And true saving faith bears fruit to eternal life. These people had rebellion right after they were saved. I know people like that today. I can think of them right now in my mind's eye. Who came to this church who heard messages from God, who surrendered to Him on this altar, who were baptized in that water right up there. And now where are they? They're gone. They've left. They're not returning. They have rebellion. They are not of saving faith. Verse 13 tells us about the people in the wilderness experience. Now they come out of salvation in the Exodus. Let's look at them in the wilderness experience. What's the first words? They quickly forgot. Amen. They quickly forgot His works. Verse 16 tells us they became envious of Moses and his brother. Verse 19 tells us they built a golden calf and worshipped it. Verse 28 tells us that they took ungodly counsel from Baal of Peor. Verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 32 tells us that they provoked the Lord at the waters of Meribah, claiming they were thirsty. And they drove Moses to make a drastic mistake in his ministry. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock because he was upset with the people. And because of that act of disobedience to God, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. So these people continued in their sin. They continued to be sinful in God. What about you today? You've been saved. You've, you surrendered at this altar. You're here today. You've been baptized, which doesn't save you anymore. It's just a mark of the Christian. His first act of following Christ is to be baptized. You've done that, but yet you're continuing. You're forgetting God's works. You become jealous of someone, even in your church or even in church ministry. You become provocative towards God in the way that you act at work, the things that you say, the things you do. You cause these problems and take ungodly counsel away from God's people. You see, it's not just the Israelites that have a problem. It's men and women all over today 
Even your pastor will struggle with sin in his life. Because that's who we are. We have now seen them in the Exodus. We've seen them in the wilderness. Now let's look at the sin they took part of in the promised land. Verse 34 through 39. Let me read that with you. It says, They did not destroy the peoples and the Lord, as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. You see, God told them to go in and you wipe clean this land of all the sin, of all the rebellion, of all that is wrong. I've judged these people, the Canaanites, and I'm going to use you, Israel, to carry out my judgment. So when they went in, but they didn't wipe out the people. In fact, they started giving their sons and daughters to marry these people. And they didn't wipe them out. And they started acting like them. And they started mingling with them. And it became a snare to Israel. It became a snare to them. They began to practice the practices of these people. Amen. They did not destroy them. They sacrificed, verse 37 says, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And they polluted the land with blood. Our Supreme Court right now is debating whether it's legal to kill a baby or not. How sad has our nation become when we have to debate that topic and take it all the way to a group of people who half don't walk with the Lord and half we hope walk with the Lord. Do you see that? We sacrifice our sons and daughters because of our pleasure, because of our choice, because it's my body. All kinds of poor decisions have been made in the past in this country. We are just like these Israelites. We live in the greatest nation in this world. The greatest country that's ever been. We live here and yet we debate about things like that as a people. We're doing the same thing as they have done and are doing even today. Because of that, verse 39 says, they became unclean in the eyes of God and they became unfaithful. Verses 40 through 43 tell us that they repeated this cycle of sin over and over and over again. Three areas of sin the psalmist deals with, with the people of God. Their salvation, their wilderness wandering, and their entrance to the promised land and the dwelling in the promised land. And their behavior in the kingdom of God. Do these people deserve to be saved? Do we deserve to be saved? Do we deserve to have what God has given us? What is the history of God If we go back in time and we look at the history of God, we could wrap it up in this sentence. His continuous mercy upon men. If we went back in time and looked at the history of man, what could we say in one sentence? The continuous sin of man. Our continuous sin and God's continuous mercy upon us. His grace is greater than our sin. We don't deserve to be saved. And yet, for some reason, look in verse 44. Nevertheless. What does that mean? That means in spite of. In spite of their sin in salvation, in spite of their sin in the wilderness, and in spite of their sin in the kingdom of God, 
Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. Nevertheless. Now turn back, if you need to, a page to the left, and go to verse 8. God's history of mercy. God's grace greater than our sin. I want you to know, no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how many times you've repeated that cycle of sin, and some of you live like this, because I'm a Christian, God will forgive me. So I'll continue like this, for a little while longer. I'll keep doing this a little bit more and I'll wean myself off of it. I'll walk away from it, but not today. The Bible calls that licentiousness. In other words, you feel like you have a license to sin because God's grace is greater and He will forgive you. Let me tell you something. This psalm will wreck your theory of licentiousness. It will tear down your license and burn it up right in front of you. How do we know that? What do we say? Well, let's read a little bit about what happens in this psalm. It says here that God uh, sent a plague upon the people. Now, He is gracious, but His grace finally has its measure. And when the people sinned, ultimately, enough to overrun the grace of God, He sent a plague among them and killed them one by one. The Bible also says while they were in their exodus and wilderness experience, that the men who became jealous of Moses, the earth opened up and swallowed families, whole families at one time. Think about that. That God would open the earth right there among them and throw in families upon families who were disobedient, rebellious, and envious. And then the Bible says there were more around them and fire came out of that hole and consumed 250 more who stood around associated with those who were swallowed up by the earth. You think you can get away with sin, brother? I'll tell you, you will not. The Bible says your sin will find you out. The Bible says the way of a sinner is hard and God will not allow His children to go on in that manner. He swallowed them up wholly by the earth. He caused fire to come upon them. He sent a plague among them. He burned up the rebels. He killed an entire generation in the desert because of their disbelief and their rebellion. Don't think you've got a license to sin. Don't think you can go on tomorrow and stop it tomorrow. You better stop it today. Amen? You better stop it now. Grace has its measure, and God is a just God. He went on to allow these nation, this nation to be captured by their enemies, but yet we read in verse 44 that He had compassion on them nevertheless. Let me tell you, there is no license. There are consequences to our sin. There will be judgment and there is discipline even today. Why should God have mercy on us? Why should He save us? Look in verse 8. 
Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name. We see a list of the things that these people have done, and the Bible tells us, in spite of all of that, He saved them. Who saved them? God saved them. God saved them. Let's let's talk about that a minute. Some of you here today are trusting in your goodness. Some of you here today are thinking, oh, I'm going to heaven because my life is turned around. And I don't sin as much as I used to. And I don't do those terrible things anymore. Oh, I know I might mess up once in a while, but God's going to overlook that. And He's going to let me in heaven because I'm really a better person than I used to be. I'm really turning into a good human being. Some of you are trusting your goodness to get into heaven. I don't want to burst your bubble. Well, yes, I do. (laughs) Okay? If your goodness was good enough to get you into heaven, then why did God send His Son to die on that cross? If your goodness could get you home, why would Jesus have to die on the cross if you can get yourself home? You can't. And you need to understand that today. Some of you think you're going to heaven because you're talented. Oh, you can pray eloquently. You can read the Bible. You can teach the Bible. You can preach. You can sing. You can do all of the religious things that need to be done. You're a leader in the church. You're someone who people look up to. You have talents to serve the Lord. I don't want to burst your bubble, but yes, I do. There was one who was talented above all of God's creation. He was beautiful. And he was known as an angel of light. And today we call him Satan. He is more talented than any of you combined together. You don't go to heaven because you're talented. You don't go to heaven because you feel gifted. You don't go to heaven for any other reason than that Jesus died for you, and you accept that. God's grace. You don't go to heaven because you're good. You don't go to heaven because you're talented, even though you may be thinking that. Some of you are trusting this, that God is good and He'll do the right thing. And He won't send good, moral, wholesome people to hell. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but you know the answer to that. Yes, I do. You see, the Bible says none of us are good. All of us have turned aside. There is none who seek after God. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. God will do the right thing, and He has done the right thing. He's kept His honor and His character and His justice By providing a way for a sinful person to come home to heaven. And he did it 2,000 years ago when he got on that cross and died in your place. God has done the right thing. 
And He'll continue to do the right thing. It's just not what you think is the right thing. God's ways are higher than your ways. God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And He has done the right thing and He continues to do so. God saved. God had the plan. Christ accomplished the plan. And the Holy Spirit seals the plan. Amen? God in three, but one God. God the Father had the plan. Jesus carried out the plan. The Holy Spirit seals the plan in your heart and life. Who saved these people nevertheless? God saved them. Now who is them? Let's talk about them for a minute. His people. Amen? His people. Then and now. Are they deserving? Of course not. Are they a more praying people than the world? Of course they are. But you don't go to heaven for being a praying person. Are they more respectable? Perhaps they are. Perhaps you are than the person out in the gutter. You're more respectable. Do you go to heaven for being respectable? Of course you don't. That man in the gutter has every chance that you have in high society or middle class or lower class. That same is for all. So, who are these people that He saved? Well, let's look at the description of them in verse 7. Oh, fathers, I'm sorry, our fathers in Egypt did not understand thy wonders. They did not remember thine abundant loving kindness, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. But nevertheless, God saved them. You see, that's grace poured out on His people, poured out on you, poured out on to the world. These people were forgetful. They were rebellious. They were disrespectful. They were ignorant. <laughs> Nevertheless, God saved them. Wow, what a great God we have. Let's talk about it. Were they converted? Well, they were carried out of Egypt by the hand of God. Oh, they walked on their own feet, yes. But God sustained them, provided for them, made their clothing last, made their shoes on their feet last, provided water and food, did everything protection, did everything for them. Were they converted? They might have been converted, but they weren't converted by God. How do we know that? Because they began to rebel immediately. They went from salvation to the golden calf in just a few days. Today we have conversions, right? People are converted. They, they come and, and they get down at this altar. You might be one of those. You may have come even to this altar or another altar in a church somewhere and, and you uh, went down front and, and you told the preacher, I want to be saved. I want to come to Christ. And, and he led you in a prayer and, and you weeped tears, crocodile tears of joy and confession and regret. And the preacher picked you up and put a smile on your face and said, let's get baptized. And you got baptized. But then your life didn't change. Nothing, nothing happened differently. You still had the same old desires to do what you were doing before. And you wondered about that, but you said, I, I went through the process I've got to be saved. That's what the Bible says. 
I feel like I'm converted, but my life is not changed. And after a period of time, you found that it was easier to stay home from church than it was to get up and go. You felt bad when you heard the messages about sin. You felt bad when you realized that you were different than the other people because you were converted, but you weren't converted by God. The same for these people. They haven't been converted by God. Where, where are these people that came down and, and now they're gone? I'll tell you where they are. They're back in the bar. They're back to telling dirty jokes at work. They're back to cheating. They're back to lying. They're back to stealing. That's where they are. They were converted but not by God. And so therefore they become ungrateful. You see what happened to these people? They shook their fist at God. They demanded to go back to Egypt. At least they had food and a bed and shelter. And God said, I didn't save you to let you go back. You're not going back. And the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. Amen. You see what's happening here? These unconverted people became ungrateful. Oh, they received God's blessing. They received the manna. They received the quail. They received the water. They received the bread, the home, the family, the health that God gives us, the strength that God supplies us. They received that, but they used that strength instead of praising Him, they now defy Him. They used that strength to go out these doors in this church and live in our community and talk bad about you. And talk bad about the Lord. And live a life of sin and licentiousness with a license to sin because God will save them because they made a commitment somewhere in their life long ago. They used that strength to break His commandments, to curse His character. But nevertheless... God saved them. Who's the ones that God saved? Look in verse 44 again with me. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. What happens when a man cries out to God? The Bible says in the only place really that it tells us how to be saved in Romans chapter 10, it says, For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What does it mean here to cry out to Him? Let me tell you, it means this, to cry out to Him, not to cry out against Him. Okay? So when you cry out to God, suddenly you realize who you are and where you stand in the scheme of all things. You see yourself for the first time as God sees you. You are somebody that was made by Him and loved dearly by Him, but you find yourself separated from Him. And God's got His hand out extended to you, showing you the way to be saved. And for the first time in your life, you realize who you are. Oh yeah, you prayed a prayer, and yeah, you got baptized, and you were converted, but you weren't converted by God. You might have been converted by Brother Clay. I might have led you to the Lord. But if your life didn't change, then you're hopeless, man, because I can't convert anybody. 
I can only lead you to the one who can convert you. I can only lead you to the one who gave his life for you to live. And so I challenge you this morning, think about it. Are you like these Israelites, saved in the wilderness, now in the kingdom, and yet your sin is rampant in your life because you're not converted by God? Today, he looks on you with compassion and he listens for that cry to him, not against him. And my friend, he will save you. Whatever's in your way. Nevertheless, what does that word mean? In spite of. In spite of what? In spite of their sin, he saved them. In spite of death hanging over your head, he saves you. In spite of the circumstances you find yourself in today, he'll save you. In spite of the relationships that you have, he'll save you when you cry out to him. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It took me 34 years to realize that. Oh yeah, I went through all the motions. I went through it. Many of you have gone through it. Some of you never have. Some of you need to do it again. Not to be saved again, but to be converted by God and not a preacher. Amen? Think about it. Let's go back to Luke chapter 7. Like Simon, he did not realize his sin. And therefore he loved Jesus little. He had no feelings for the Lord. He had no want. It's not the amount of sin. It's the realization of sin. When you, saw, when you finally see yourself for who you really are, not who you want people to think you are, but for who you really are before God, you'll never be saved. You've got to see yourself as broken and undone before a holy God who loves you and has His hand out to you. Take it. Grace, great grace is offered to you right now in this place. Great grace to all who would receive it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your unmerited favor toward us. And Father, I pray today that you would change the hearts of all of us and the lives of some. And we pray that now in Jesus' holy name. Amen.